Welcome to the Inception Family Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Delaney. I am the author of the strategic estate planning book, The Naked Opus, Growing Your Family Wealth for the Long Term. I'm an author, keynote speaker, family enterprise advisor, and family wealth continuity consultant. I really enjoy talking about estate planning and family business succession. I want to thank the hundreds of listeners who have been making this show a success. We're improving every week. Thank you for your comments. If you have a show idea, please contact me using the contact information on the show notes. Thanks to everyone that has been suggesting great authors, speakers, and thought leaders for the show. We're building a terrific inventory of content, and the shows ahead are every bit as exciting as the ones we've already done. This week's special guest is Cindy David. Cindy will be answering the question, what if I need to do financial planning? Cindy is a certified financial planner, CLU, Family Enterprise Advisor, and a member of the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners. She is the principal of the Cindy David Financial Group in Vancouver, BC. She is also the new chair of KLU's Board of Directors. KLU is the Conference for Advanced Life Underwriters here in Canada. Cindy David Financial Group is a boutique estate planning firm serving families and businesses in British Columbia, and they specialize in business succession and continuation. She talks about her path into this industry and how she became so involved with Kalu. Cindy also shares her thoughts on the importance of financial planning, goals-based planning, some of the implications associated with seeking insurance coverage in the COVID-19 era, what to look for in a financial planner or advisor, and what not to do in these turbulent times. I'd like to welcome uh, Cindy David to the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast this week. Um, Cindy, as you know, this is a show about estate planning and family business succession. Uh, I asked all of our guests how they ended up in this space. Can you share your journey with us? Yeah, thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Um, oh, my pleasure. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time to be here. We've had some technical difficulties getting started, but finally we are here. <laughs> We're all good. We're all good. Well, I, I won't start with the year that I was born, but I will, I will sort of start with my, my career journey, which I'm sure is what you're uh, interested in. And, you know, I, I'll be honest and say I, I always wanted to be a lawyer growing up, uh, probably because I didn't know what that actually meant or entailed. But when it, <laughs> when it came time to decide on, you know, post-secondary uh, education options, I chose to go into business admin as the starter, um, and throughout that um, that education, uh, you know, specializing in in business commerce, I crossed paths with somebody um, while I was in university who was a financial planner at a small but well-known firm in Vancouver, and I loved everything about what he did. He got to work with people and numbers, just not, not just one or the other, which sometimes can be the case in certain professions. Mm-hmm. And he made a great living. So I was very um, a- attracted to the industry because of what I saw uh, with that individual and getting to, to know uh, what it was all about. So I pivoted and decided to get into financial services at a very young age. But because it's very difficult to, uh, you know, in your early 20s, thrive in this business, I went to work uh, for someone who was already successful and someone that I felt I could learn a great deal from. So during that time, uh, while I was somebody's assistant, I did a lot of learning at the office, but also in the books. So I, 
got all of my certifications. I got my certified financial planning uh, designation and my chartered life underwriting designation. And there are also licensing um, exams that we get to take while we go so that we can actually get stuff done for clients. Um, and after about five years, I um, went on, went out on my own and I'll, I'll get to, to what I did after that. But uh, later in my career, I added other designations. I feel like it's really been a nonstop learning process. So I've added the um, trust and estate practitioner designation. And also, as you mentioned, the family enterprise advisory designation. So after I left the small financial planning office, I moved into the securities world and I worked for a couple of years at Scotia McLeod. Um, and after two short years uh, seemed to go by really quickly, I was recruited um, as a specialist in estate planning at Raymond James. Um, and I was in that role as their estate planning advisor covering all of British Columbia uh, for the last 18 years. But halfway through that tenure, I realized uh, I wasn't fulfilling my goal of being an, an entrepreneur and growing my own business. I was helping other people grow their businesses. So I convinced them as an employee to allow me to incorporate and grow my own business on the side while still being their estate planning advisor. And I did that back in 2010. So I did both jobs right up until September of last year when I made the decision to become truly independent and focus on my own business. Um, and so you made that pivot uh, uh, a, a few years ago to to go into the entrepreneurship. What was it you liked about uh, uh, about being an entrepreneur? Because it is a very attractive, although a very scary thing at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's why um, I it took a lot of convincing, uh, but I think that's why I tried to set it up the way that I did, so that I. I still had access to a lot of clients while working at Raymond James, um, while being able to build my business slowly. You know, these things don't happen overnight and I didn't want to quit my day job to start singing. So, um, so to speak. Um, and so it, it's nice to be in a position where you can, you can work uh, with other individuals, have access to a myriad of clients and client situations to learn from while, slowly growing your business and growing your network over time. And, and I, I noticed, I mean, we talked earlier uh, uh, before we started recording here. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to, to, to have you on for an interview, there were, there were a few things, and, and, but one for sure was that your background, and I think this is something that's really important for whether they're financial clients, uh, financial services clients, or whether they're uh, family, uh, family business uh, clients that, that, that we might be working with, um, your background demonstrates a, a very obvious curiosity in a wide range of not necessarily um, required learning. Like you've tried to add a lot of different arrows to your quiver. So the family enterprise advisor designation, for example, which is um, a relatively new designation. It's something not, I know a little something about that probably stemmed a little bit from what you were seeing in your practice. And, and possibly a, an advisory gap that you saw in, in, in the space that you were in. What, how, how do you, what is that and how do you use that, Cindy? Yeah, well, you know, the Family Enterprise Advisory um, came into my life by way of my network. So I found that um, 
whether it was just time in the industry or the people that I had started connecting with through, you know, local things like the estate planning of Vancouver um, and networking events, um, I found that a lot of the advisors that I, or other professionals that I wanted to work with uh, were seeking that as a designation. And I didn't want to be the only one out of the club. Uh, I wanted to be a part of the conversation and I was just curious about what what was it that they felt they didn't have already given the number of years of experience uh you know this is already at a time where i had 15 almost 20 years uh of experience under my belt so you kind of wonder what is it that this education is is trying to to get through to us and you you really have to keep an open mind because when you become an expert at your technical job um, it doesn't mean you're an expert at what other other people need from you necessarily. And I, and I really got a lot out of that. It helped with the conversation. It helped open open my mind to the fact that clients are sometimes looking for something other than just technical advice. Um, you know, from from the the books that we study or the um, uh, the things that we know uh, with regard to legislation or product knowledge, uh, sometimes they're looking for us to help them with a, some broader discussions. Well, and, and I've often, uh, uh, that's been my experience. That's part of the guest selection process for this show is, is having people on that I think will help our listeners find the people they need. Um, and knowing who a client needs sometimes requires you, anybody as an advisor, to pull themselves up a little bit uh, out of their their incredibly skilled talent silo, their expertise silo, and look around at at what's required. And and um, one of the things I found with with the Family Enterprise Advisor Program was that 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 helped me, and it sounds like it did to you as well. But you added that to a CFP designation and a CLU designation. Um, The CFP, now, um, a lot of people, a lot of listeners think that financial planning or may think that financial planning um, is synonymous with investment advising or uh, tax planning at the end of the year. What, what ex- you know, in, in a broad sense, because again, this is part of your value proposition, but I, I also think that it's, it's part of the way the, the broader industry is going, is to, and you highlighted this towards uh, greater, you know, uh, 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 ongoing learning all the time. What, yeah. what is the CFP designation and um, how is it different from those examples that I highlighted? Yeah, and where I'm heading with this, Cindy, is that, you know, you describe yourself as a financial planner, retirement planner, and succession advisor, and you've got a boutique estate planning business. I, I'm, I'm heading towards uh, really excited to hear about what that means to be a boutique right. estate planning uh, firm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the designations are, you know, they're important. So very early in my career, I heard a legend in our business, um, Jim Rogers, he spoke at an advocacy uh, conference and he said, you know, if you want to be the best, just don't let a lack of education be the reason that you, you don't land a client or that you don't, you know, you don't get to where you want in life. So uh, those words just stuck with me and I made it a point to get all the licenses, but also 
to further get the designations. So that's, that's really the education part that, that can be missing. You know, our industry is going through a transformation uh, with regard to what are we allowed to call ourselves and, you know, what is the minimum standard for being able to call yourself a financial planner? Um, and we're right in the middle of that. So there's a lot of conversation going on around that. And uh, you know, 20, more than 20, uh, I'd say 25 years ago, I, I, it was just really obvious to me that it would be important to always have those designations so that regardless of what any um, of the regulators say or what clients are looking for, that I have that under my belt. The CFP is a, a very common designation, and so it's called Certified Financial Planning Designation. And it, in my opinion, if you're working with a planner, uh, should be a minimum requirement. Um, but it doesn't, it's not an indicator of um, necessarily the quality of advice that you're going to get. Um, it's just an indicator that somebody went through, um, at, you know, eight months to 12 months of studying a book that has very um, broad brush, sort of flying at the uh, 30,000 foot window and, and saying, okay, these are all of the aspects you need to learn about and understand about financial planning. If you want to get really technical that's where i would say the the second designation that i got um was helpful with the so the chartered life underwriter uh designation sounds like a life insurance degree or diploma it does um, yeah <laughs> i know it's, it's definitely i would say mistitled because i feel that was my university education and understanding what planning and advice is required specifically for business owners uh, there is a lot more information and access in that program for financial advisors. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I work with a lot of in, investment advisors and, and have um, really extensively worked with hundreds of investment advisors over the, over the past. And you can tell, you know, people who have spent the time to understand the taxes, the tax situation and tax planning available for business owners and those who haven't. Um, those who haven't tend to shy away from the conversation and don't ask all of the questions that they should be asking. Um, so the CLU is, I, th I think, a, a great degree. I always have a lot of respect for my colleagues who have gone through the process to get it. Um, and I got it with the intention of learning more about business succession and business taxation. Um, you know the other thing too that I would I would if if we're talking about a client who's deciding on how to find an advisor or who they should pick on their short list, um, I always say time in the business is important as well. Um, I am definitely a better advisor now than I was ten years ago, and ten years ago I was a better advisor than I was twenty years ago. Right. So right. you know, time in the business is is really important, and asking advi your advisor, you know a little bit about who they typically work with and, and what advice that they tend to focus on. Um, if you're look, if you're working with an investment advisor and they are calling themselves a financial planner, but not actually providing a financial plan, then you're possibly missing out on some um, access to advice that um, that's available for you. Um, so I would say, you know, a RIF projection, is not a financial plan, right, um, right. and even a uh, cash flow synopsis, like sort of, we're talking about 
pen and on napkin kind of stuff is, is a lot of what I've seen. That's not a financial plan. A financial plan is a very comprehensive document that covers um, all aspects. What are your goals? What does your balance sheet look like? What is the starting point? What do you own and who owns what? And then what are all sources of income? And, and being able to advise on that pension options. Should I take, you know, uh, should I take my, my pension at the earliest unreduced uh, time? Should I take a joint survivor option? Should I take my CPP early um, or defer it? You know, all of, all of those questions should be um, asked and answered in the financial planning process. So cash flow, and, and should I spend my RRSPs or withdraw from my RIF early while we, if we have access to income splitting and lower tax brackets? You know, what happens if I don't do that at death in our new high tax bracket that is going to apply to a lot of estates going forward is 53%. Uh, so there's some tax pain that we need to, we need to use a financial plan to really hone in on and to be able to give ourselves, our clients actionable advice year over year. Um, not just have a 50-page document that, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of, a lot of the financial planning uh, software will spit out 50-page documents that and don't. People don't want to read it. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, they really need regular guidance through it. Yeah, exactly. So I, you know, I I was actually just interviewed uh, for a CKNW. Um, radio spot and that was one of the things that I, I said you know if you have a financial plan but you can't remember when it was done because it was probably more than two years ago and time flies uh, when you're going through a pandemic um, <laughs> it's time to maybe maybe what day is it anyways there's no such thing as the work week anymore it's just yeah. a blur um, but you know just pull out that document um, give it a shake and dust it off and, and maybe you know read through it and try and find those one or two actionable items that um, that were discussed at the time and maybe put it in front of your current advisors whoever you have access to um, and say hey like should we should we give this an update we've been through a lot a lot of change since the last time it was updated so keep it keeping it fresh is, is important and if you if you're a business owner man we've had um, historic changes to to the taxation of small businesses Canadian controlled pri uh, private companies in Canada uh, a couple of years ago um, so I'd be shocked, you know, if to find many people who hadn't had at least one conversation with um, an advisor, whether a lawyer, accountant, or financial advisor about those changes and how it's affecting them. There's a lot, uh, you know, the, the whole landscape changed two years ago with regard to the advice that we give. Should I pay myself a dividend versus a salary or bonus? And and what are all the reasons around that? And income splitting with spouses has been affected. How I save in my, my company has been affected. This, you know, you can, you can get to a point where it's punitive. And the fact of the matter is, of course, we have options to get around the, the, those changes in legislation that really caused a lot of tax pain for our clients. And if you're not regularly monitoring those, you can miss a lot of opportunities um, yeah. fairly quickly that may be hard to recover in any sort of retrograde planning. You yeah. Know, you can't always fix those misses. Um, uh, with the, so the integration, and, and this is, uh, this is 
this podcast, we try to, I try to focus really hard on estate planning and family business succession. And I think this is, is right in your wheelhouse with the work that you do. Um, the CLU, the, the, the CFP, the investment experience that you've had, the, the, the family enterprise advisor uh, uh, mindset that you would bring to that. You, you can't avoid the estate planning conversation. And um, I think that a lot of people are, really unsure where to begin when they're doing that. Um, and I've often thought that an advisor like yourself, a financial planner, could be an investment advisor, uh, is in a really unique uh, position um, and is a very logical uh, uh, spot to start that process. What do you think of when you think of estate planning? How do you describe that to your clients? And where's a good starting point for them? Yeah. Oh, that's, um, that's a, a big one. So I'll try and break it down. Yeah. Um, you know, where to start is now, first of all. So if people are thinking about, uh, geez, I really, you know, it's, I haven't looked at my will in a long time, or I still don't have a will. And, um, you know, maybe I'm embarrassed about that, or I've been procrastinating it uh, on getting it done, because I don't have the answers to some of the questions that, that I know I'll be asked. So I, I would just really encourage people to rip off the bandaid and get started. Uh, the, the best time is is now to get to get started. And how um, is a great next question. So who do you who do you call um, to get your estate planning going? Is it your lawyer? Um, do you book a, an appointment to get a will done? And the answer is probably yes to that uh, as well. But um, you know, I agree with you that, um, and I, I'll confess to a bias here. I, I think the answer is that you should start with a financial advisor, and possibly somebody who has elaborate that. on that because I don't, <laughs> I don't disagree with you. <laughs> well, possibly sometimes some people who uh, any an advisor who has spent some time specializing in estate planning. You know, when I got into the industry almost twenty eight years ago, it everybody was a generalist. You would go to one financial advisor who, if you were a business owner, would help set up a group employee benefits plan for you, uh, manage your RRSPs and savings, um, maybe sell you some life insurance if you need it, and do a retirement plan. And nowadays, it, things have gotten so much more complicated that I don't think clients are well served with a general generalist at this point anymore. So I would say find an estate planning specialist, somebody who uh, knows, knows a lot about legislation. Uh, you know, we have a, a new wills and estate succession act. I'm saying new, uh, but it was, you know, in 2014, that's still fairly new for a lot of people. <laughs> it is in the estate planning. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then we have, um, the largest, you know, most significant changes to legislation affecting life insurance that took place at the end of 2016. That was a 15-year process with finance. Um, so, you know, you combine a whole bunch of, of things specifically with regard to estate planning. If, you, if you're working with somebody who hasn't made a point of being an expert in those areas, um, you might miss something. Uh, so choose somebody with experience with who is educated and, and can prove that they have the designations under their belt um, and and choose somebody who is just willing to sit down and have that conversation with you. So 
I do hear from other colleagues in my network that they feel they're the ones who act as the quarterback uh, for clients, whether it's lawyers or accountants or even, you know, mergers and acquisition brokers, um, brokers that help clients through a transition or sale of a business. They become very integral to that that client's life. They don't do everything. They're really just helping helping with that transaction. But um, what I would say about that is if somebody is really good at their job, regardless of what what silo of profession they fall into, uh, we're probably all right in that we're all trusted advisors. You know, if if you can if you can demonstrate to your client that you're an expert and you're giving good advice, then then that has the effect of really increasing trust and the faith in that professional. And, and so we're all the quarterbacks, we, you know, we're, we're all right. But um, really what you, if you think about what we're doing for clients is we're advocating for them. We're always thinking about what's in their best interest and delivering advice and recommendations to them that help them accomplish their goals and sleep at night. Um, you know, and just make sure that they're not missing out on anything important. So uh, if I circle all of that back to where do I start? I would say start with a financial advisor who is quite likely to spend more time with you asking the questions. That's kind of what we're trained to do is ask you all of the questions. You know, that fact finding mission is tell me everything about yourself, uh, your goals, your balance sheet, your income statement. Um, and we'll try and tie that into a, a, a financial plan for you. And then we will bring in the other experts when you need them. Um, some things can be done at the same time. So while you're, you know, updating your financial plan, you can start the process for um, updating your will, uh, making sure your power of attorneys are in place um, and that sort of thing. Um, if it's, if more specific, you might want to do things at different times. So, so not everything can be done at the same time. Well, and, and I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that the, uh, the someone who's in a role like yourself, similar to yourself, you really are uniquely perched. Um, you mentioned goal-based planning. Uh, I think that you are able to spend the time with the client to explore the real drivers in their planning, uh, their, 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 their planning desires. And, and, and because of your your planning objectives, I should say, and because of your broad background, that allows you to be a little bit kind of like Switzerland sometimes. You know, you're able to say, that's not really my bailiwick. That's specifically a legal question. So, so yeah. we're going to make sure we get that conversation going. And that's a tax issue. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll get that going. But really, we need to start a little further back at what it is you're trying to achieve with these goals. And a lot of times, you are the one who can spend the time with the client to do that. And a lot of times the feasibility of those goals is going to be driven by the financial reality of the client in the first place. And that's where your uh, focus on marshalling their resources and understanding what their estate is, is really a key starting point. Uh, it, yeah, it ends there's, up being a logical spot. There's all of those reasons which are absolutely accurate and right. but. I'll also say that from a client's perspective, a huge reason why your financial advisor is going to have more time for you is we don't get, we don't charge an hourly fee. Right, uh, right. So the financial services industry is, has been, always has been, and likely always will be a, a largely a commission based industry. Um, and that means we get paid to have those conversations, whether we're making money or not. 
you know, we're, we're getting paid on, um, assets under management. So the, on the investment side, we're getting paid, uh, renewal commissions on insurance fees or, um, you know, front end loaded, uh, commissions on insurance fees. And the way that those commissions are structured, it has the effect of affording us the time in our days to be able to spend with clients without checking our watches. Uh, there's no invoice that's going to follow at the end of this. So, you know, I always say it's, I'd rather get this right than do it quickly. Um, well, and, and that helps you do your job too. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's absolutely critical to you to understand all of those pieces as well and not be on the clock because that results in better decision-making. Yeah. Point. And I have no, I have no problem with it. Um, I have no problem disclosing how we get paid on the commission side. Um, and, and I think some people do, and there's lots of conversation happening around commission disclosure and that sort of thing. And I've, I have really rolled up my sleeves and looked at the options around charging a fee, uh, for time uh, on my side. And I haven't had a good experience. I've had clients actually request it and I, kind of against my will have agreed to it on a couple of occasions but exactly that happened it's just checking the watch and checking the watch and and so i've had to say we are officially off the clock <laughs> i'm not yeah. sending you an invoice from any from this point forward so we can stop checking our watches and just have this conversation um you know i i find it a, a distraction quite frankly and so i'm happier I think there's a good result for clients with the way that the financial industry is set up. Well, and I think it, it, it turns the entire relationship around to adding value instead of adding incremental change. Yes. Uh, and instead of just being busy and doing things, you're actually working towards a, you know, they may not see the immediate value until, 20 years from now and that's when they'll see the value of all the work that you put in at the front end um and that that is gratifying when it works of course but um i think having an engaged client who's not looking at the clock and is paying attention to what they really really want and, and how you think uh, they should be helped by that is a far better outcome than than um, you know a, a having to keep your keep your time under a certain number of hours in order to achieve a dollar yeah. outcome that, yeah. that's a much better way to provide your services now don't get me wrong there are a couple of really great fee for service financial planners that i know oh, of of course yeah in the lower mainland and they're they're fantastic but they don't necessarily give specific product recommendations and and so they need to work with somebody like me. You know, it's not that we're all in competition with each other. It's, it's that we're here to support the goals of our clients. And if that means um, working with a fee-for-service financial planner uh, so that they get the best value on that side, but also having that planner work and partner with somebody like me who is an expert on the product side, uh, that's a win-win. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, and that speaks a lot to your ability to uh, add, you, you obviously have a capacity to work uh, in a team setting, which I can say is something that you, if you didn't understand the importance of it, you do learn the importance of it when you're doing things like the Family Enterprise Advisor yeah. program, you know, being able to function yeah. in that multidisciplinary environment is absolutely critical. And, and um Clients pick up on that really quickly. They sense right away that you've got, you don't, you've checked your ego at the door. 
uh, you're there for them now. And, uh, and if that means that you're going to have to, to refer work off to somebody else or compartmentalize the project somehow, that's what's going to happen uh, yeah. because that's what's in their best interests. Um, so you, you know, I, I have to admit, I, I, uh, I spend probably far too much time on Twitter and, and, and sadly enough, this <laughs> pandemic has allowed me to, uh, to do that. And, and I, I, I love it and hate it at the same time, but it was on Twitter that I saw that you had, um, because I spend too much time there, uh, <laughs> that I saw that you had recently become the chair of KLU and, uh, congratulations on that achievement. Can you tell us a little bit about what KLU is? Because that's another aspect of the, the entire value proposition that you would bring to your clients. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you about my experience with Kalu. why I joined in the first place and then I'll get to what Kalu is and, and, uh, yeah, some of the work that we're doing there. Um, it, you know, I would, I've been a long time member of advocates that supports, I think, more than 13,000 licensed out of over 30,000 uh, licensed financial planners in the country um, for many years. And it was a great learning ground in the early years. And then it just got to the point where I felt that I could probably deliver all of the presentations that I was attending and wasn't really learning uh, beyond my skill set at the time. And it became obvious to me that the place that uh, specialists go to learn on advanced tax uh, planning issues was KLU. So KLU stands for the Conference for Advanced Life Underwriters. It was formed 27 years ago, now, well, now 28 uh, years ago uh, by a group of individuals who got together and, to represent the insurance industry and work with government to protect our clients. So when sometimes you have government having some really great ideas on how to change legislation uh, that has bad results for our clients. So uh, our founding charter members got together and, and formed this, this group. At the time, there weren't as many uh, rules around lobbying the government and how we were able to influence our members of par parliament. Uh, and now there are. So we, we are um, considered an, uh, the insurance lobby, I guess, to the federal government, even though insurance is governed, um, licensing, et cetera, are governed provincially. Mm -hmm. KALU is an organization that is seen as a strategic partner or, um, you know, key stakeholder to finance when they're reviewing things that affect uh, legislation and our clients. Um, and so that's where I go or started going for, for knowledge. And while being a member there for about three years, I realized that even as a member and going to the, their annual general meeting every year, which is great. Um, I, there was still a, a group of individuals within that very small group. Um, so Kalu is a limited group membership group. We're, we only allow 450 members as opposed to 13,000. And so there's, you really have to have demonstrated that you, you represent sort of the top 1% uh, of advisors in the insurance industry to be able to join. But when I joined, I realized that out of that 450 member group, there, were, there was an even smaller subset of people that seemed to know even more about what was going on <laughs> in Ottawa. And it became obvious to me that they were either current board members or past board members. So I put up my hand and got on the board and 
um, gosh, it's been a, a, <laughs> seven years now. Uh, I have gone through, um, I spent a, three years as a general director and then I went on to, to uh, the executive track and I'm at the tail end now obviously as chair, but sure. um, what Kalu is, I'm, I'm just, I'm going to read to you uh, the vision and mission statement because a lot of work goes into these things and, and we're actually really actively reviewing constantly daily when we, when we're doing anything, anything, we're making sure it aligns with our vision and mission. So we provide leadership and in innovative advanced planning solutions and advocacy to promote the financial health of Canadians. Um, and our mission is that KLU promotes a deeper understanding of complex financial and tax initiatives for members and clients and influences sound public policy. So it's definitely a political group. The point is that we use our membership and our relationships to, to build relationships with our members of parliament so that we're there when they, they need us. As the chair of KLU, I will tell you that I do have some of my own initiatives um, and so sort of three I've chosen three things that are near and dear to me so as top priorities I am working on the advancement of women advisors I think women make great advisors and only 12% of advisors in Canada are are female is that right Yes, we paid for a survey to be done, and, and uh, there, there are other diversity issues in financial services, but that, that was uh, one of the things that was highlighted. A lot of companies actually have diversity programs that have, are targeting 25% female advisors by 2025, mm -hmm. and when those diversity initiatives came out, gosh, I'd say it was around 2015, it seemed like we had a lot of time to work on it. And now we're closing in on 2025 pretty quickly. So we've really got to, we've got to shine a light on that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you've asked me a couple of times about the pandemic, uh, the pandemic and seniors and how this has affected um, that subset of, of our population, I think is something that financial services needs to take a good hard look at, especially if we're talking about estate planning and insurance, which is what KLU uh, focuses on. Uh, I think we have some work to do there. Uh, improving products, improving access to information, and improving our support in general to to our seniors. Uh, so we'll be we'll be we're forming uh, some some committees uh, to to focus on uh, what are best practices and the you know getting the the brightest minds in our country together to talk about how we can accomplish those those goals. The, the third thing is tax fairness for business uh, owners, specifically the unfair taxation associated with transferring family businesses to family members. In its current form, uh, there's a section of the Income Tax Act that can actually encourage or push entrepreneurs to sell their businesses to a stranger rather than to a family member. So we've got work to do, and those are the, the initiatives that we're working on at KLU. Um. I, I find all of those um, uh, headings, you know, each one of those, each one of those initiatives that you want to focus on during your leadership tenure are a separate podcast uh, <laughs> in, in and of themselves. And, and you know, You're as a father, of, well, as a father of daughters, you know, I'm particularly interested in the, the first one. And maybe we can, maybe we can do that another day and talk, you know, go a little more deeply into um, what you see is, is required uh, and what's in the way and um, what has been done as far as advancing uh, 
female advisors, because I agree with you 100%. I think they, uh, just broadly speaking and entirely anecdotally on my own part, um, there's a mindset and a, and a long-term, it tends to be a long-term mindset uh, and, and a focus on holistic planning that, that a lot of female advisors that I've seen over the years seem to have very naturally. And, and um, I think that's the future. You know, my own opinion is, is that that's going to be, if not the future, it's going to be a significant component of the future because I think the um, current a cohort of, of millennials want that. That's part of what they are going to come to expect from their advisors. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I agree. Think that I'm, at your, I'm at your service, Chris, anytime <laughs> you need me. Okay, well, all right. We'll, well, you volunteered, so I'm, I'm putting a check mark beside that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so last week I had on uh, the show um, uh, a person who had another background, uh, not exclusively, but, but not insignificantly in the, the, the world of uh, advocacy. And um, you probably know Laura Tamlin Watts. Um, she's the CEO of CanAge and, and uh, she had been involved with uh, the Canadian Association of Retired People for many, many years mm-hmm. um, as their media spokesperson and, and as a policy advisor. She is a lawyer. We talked about the, the global coronavirus pandemic that you just mentioned and some of the associated planning issues for families with elderly loved ones. What, what are some of the issues that you see that have emerged from this new environment that's, that's been created by the pandemic and our response mm-hmm. to the pandemic, both for your practice, because that's gonna, you know, that's gonna be how clients are gonna feel it, and for an advocacy group like KLU, which you may have already addressed, but, but yeah, how, well, how are clients gonna experience that? There's, um, we haven't talked about some of the points that I've listed here under this question, uh, and it might actually uh, kill a couple of birds with one stone. So um, be prepared for that. It might, I think I'm answering That's all right. <laughs> one question with this. But uh, so there have been some challenges posed by the pandemic, specifically, um, how do you apply for life insurance when a face-to-face medical is required uh, with a nurse to go through insurance medicals? Um, and we ran into a problem where basically our doors were closed for business for us, um, for large case applications. Um, so any applications above 2 million, we just, there, you know, we were, we were out in the cold for a couple of months and there was so much uncertainty around that, um, uncertainty for our, our clients who are retiring, who don't want to risk their, their health let alone their lives, uh, to go get an insurance medical. Um, and then insurance companies who, even if a client paid for that, that medical, they weren't accepting them. Uh, so we, you know, we had to work through some, some issues there. Uh, and then you know, for not just for financial advisors, but for a lot of people in our country, if you think about closing your doors for business, all of a sudden, completely unplanned, um, how long can you stay, afford to stay in that business? So I think the the loss of some advisors and the shrinking shrinking the advisory market um, is an issue for just f- for Canadians in general. It's a loss of choice uh, and experience yeah. as well. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so solutions that have come out of that that I think are uh, great and working great is um, that 
um, all the doors are open again. So we don't have any issues with uh, clients going to get insurance medicals because we've, in addition to having roaming medical services, which we've always had, we also have fixed facility services. So if somebody's more comfortable going into a building where they can see the arrows that are showing us where to walk. So, you know, we've put in place the proper social distancing that quite frankly, British Columbians have, have done a bang up job on. Um, we were on phase three, soon to be phase four. Uh, and without a spike in numbers. So social distancing throughout a, a, an insurance paramedical, I think is an important comfort factor, but also an important uh, process that we need to be following for sure. Right. Um, other improvements though, for the you know clients, a lot of Canadians don't fall into that large case market. Yeah. Uh, that's more where my, my specialty is, but I would say a, a huge benefit that has come out of this pandemic is the fact that all of the insurance companies, they didn't want their doors to be closed either, by the way. So they increased their non-medical limits dramatically. So across the board, most insurance companies had a $250,000 non-medical limit. So if you didn't want to pee in a cup or provide a blood sample and go through that, you know, whole painful paramedical process, you could apply for 250,000, just answer a few questions on an insurance application. And without any real glaring past medical history, you could get approved. Um, so that limit has gone up almost unilaterally across the board, all insurance companies in Canada up to 2 million. That's a huge benefit. A lot of Canadians will fall within that $2 million mark. So um, I think that's, that's a good result for, for consumers. Yeah. They also uh, improved a compliance thorn in my side with regard to face-to-face -face witnessing of signatures, either at the time of application or the time of delivery. So that is a huge improvement, I think, to both advisors who now, if there's fewer of us, we have less time, and our clients who don't want to be at risk inviting somebody into their home or going to somebody's office uh, to just improve the process of putting insurance in place. Um, and I would say also technology improvements. So the insurance companies have really done a bang-up job giving clients access to online applications and improving that, that whole experience and process. So there are definitely some good things that have come out of, of the COVID-19 and specifically the insurance industry. I, I had watched a, uh, one of my, my personal favorite, probably the only show that I shush everyone out of the room so that I can watch each week is uh, Fareed Zakaria's GPS on CNN on Sunday mornings. And I, he did a uh, monk debate in Toronto. Uh, I'm going to say it was in April. I think it was in April. And, and he said that uh, he was asked, you know, what, what do you see coming out of this, this global crisis? Uh, what, how's it going to play out? And he, he sort of said that one of the things that this is going to do is it's going to accelerate changes that were already happening and were maybe, you know, directionally, that's not going to change. Uh, and there'll be some surprises here and there, but things that were going to happen um, are just going to be accelerated right now. And I think you've identified with technology and some of the ability to, to um, 
eliminate the need for face-to-face -face meetings. I think that's going to be the new norm now. You can't, you know, they're not going to be able to take that away now. People are going to expect that. And I think that that's going to change a lot of things. Uh, lawyers' offices here in Ontario, and I'm sure it's the same everywhere in Canada, have, have had to adopt similar things for will signings you know the requirement to have uh, two witnesses present at the same time and there are now protocols I, I think that those changes that have been brought on by the pandemic aren't going to go away because the hand the the you know the future just came forward a little bit faster than people yeah. expected probably i hope we don't digress i i hope you're you're right in that I, I hope so too, because I, I, I think that that's um, anything that makes it easier for people to get the, the documents, the services and the advice they need uh, is, is, I think, a good thing as long as it's done carefully. Um, in, I, I noticed in your, um, in your uh, biography that you had written a book and, and it was in response to the 2009 financial crisis and you, you co-authored a book uh, uh, entitled First Aid for Canadian Investors. And, that crisis was primarily a financial and credit crisis. Correct. What, what do you see, you know, you, you had some solutions in there. Uh, I think of first aid, I think of band-aids, you know, keep the bleeding going, don't get an infection. Uh, what, do you, what do you see for uh, estate planning, asset management, uh, insurance uh, uh, provisioning, and financial planning in general for clients as a result of the economic fallout from this pandemic event? Yeah. Uh, a great question again. Uh, well, so I'll, I'll address the difference, the investing and financial planning uh, separately. For a long time, I've believed in the importance of working with a discretionary portfolio manager. And what that means is that all clients get the same trade at the same time. Yeah. When the market is tanking or when there is uncertainty in the marketplace, you can have somebody working for you without wondering if you've missed a phone call to approve uh, a transaction in your investment portfolio. So I think it's really important for clients to recognize the difference between an investment advisor who has to make a phone call to get permission to do their jobs, uh, whether it's, hey, I, I wanna get out of Royal Bank and buy TD today, do you agree? Um, if if Royal Bank is having a, an issue and, and their stock price is plummeting, uh, first question that comes to my mind is, who do you think your investment advisor is going to call first? Are you their biggest client? Sure. And it can often take, when, when investment advisors manage how, you know, between 250 to 500 households, it can take up to two weeks for them to make all of the appropriate calls. And when they do call, uh, for some reason or another, clients like to argue with them or disagree. So they end up with uh, everybody who has different things in their portfolio at different times. It becomes a tracking uh, and review nightmare. Uh, it's just not a good business practice, really. It's, it's a, I think, a structural deficiency uh, on the investment side mm -hmm. that is completely solved by a discretionary portfolio manager who has gone through some extra steps and training to qualify, to be able to get approved, to make trades in your account on your behalf without asking you permission, but with a requirement to report back to you on a regular basis about what they've done and what the results of those decisions were. So it's not that you get less service or less access to an investment advisor when you change to a portfolio manager. It's just that I, I find that the results are, are 
typically better. They're raising cash when things are are um, are looking good. You know, they're taking they're taking some profits off the table, so that when uh, markets have, are tanking, they already have that you know the stores to be able to to buy stocks that they really like that were perhaps overpriced at one time. So. Um, I really enjoy working with discretionary portfolio managers. It's sort of a minimum requirement for me if I'm going to recommend uh, where clients go. And as a result, I've gone out of my way to find some of the best portfolio managers uh, in my city anyways, um, to be able to work with. So, you know, when we, we always say to clients, ask about education, ask about licensing, ask about experience when you're interviewing people. And those are some of the questions I think people should be aware of, you know, are you discretionary or, or do you have to, do you have to call me every time? And, and even if uh, some, sometimes uh, clients are with advisors who are not discretionary, but they're in what are called managed accounts and other investment, uh, like other, other money managers are making those buy and sell decisions. Um, you still want to be careful with those accounts because they're not allowed to go to cash. And this is a problem. I'm not going to throw any um, securities dealership or firm under the bus here. But if, if you have an inability to get out of the way of a freight train coming right at you, um, I think that's a problem. So one of the biggest handcuffs that an investment portfolio can have is being forced to stay invest invested when the markets are crashing. Um, and I guarantee you there's at least one person listening to this podcast right now that is wondering if they're that person. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the volatility that are in the markets right now, having that nimbleness and that ability to move quickly, uh, uh, that a discretionary uh, advisor gives their clients. I mean, you, you, you have to overcome that initial hurdle because I think people kind of grow up thinking not, not incorrectly that they need to be engaged in some of the decision-making and, and that sensory feeling of good, you know, that someone's going to give you a call and discuss a transaction with you that you, you said it, I mean, that could take weeks and by then that's a lifetime in the markets. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. And on the other, I, the, just to quickly address the financial planning side, um, I, I don't know that I, I have a lot of depth here, but I think that what I would want to say on, on working with a financial planner is, is just to be sure that you're working with somebody who is giving you unbiased advice. Um, you know, just independence can be important sometimes. And, um, working with somebody who is, you know, represents you and before they represent their firm. Um, and are there ways, you know, if you were, if, if a client were to say, you know, how do I, how do I know that? Like, how do I, what kind of questions could I ask? Is there something you would suggest to people that you know, here's, here's a question or a couple questions that might, give you that answer and you, you decide whether you, you, you're comfortable with the response or not. Yeah. I mean, probably, um, you know, do you have a minimum production requirements mm -hmm. by your firm? Do you, are you ever asked to sell one, a proprietary product? Um, 
And you this, mean by you a know? proprietary product of, if somebody is with bank X, bank X yes. might have GICs or might have something like yeah. that to buy those, for example. Yeah. 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 So yeah. probably a better way to put that would, would be to ask your advisor if they're able to broker products freely versus being, you know, um, hamstrung by a company or company policy on, on internal products. Um, one of the one of the more misunderstood planning tools uh, in the world, and I learned a lot. Like when when I went to law school, which is my background, was a long time ago. Um, I, I learned, I, I foolishly, and I'm happy to admit that foolishly, came out of uh, into the world thinking that. Uh, after graduation, thinking that taxes and, and insurance were four letter words and, and, you know, maybe one of them is, but the other one isn't. And, and, uh, and that would be insurance. Um, and, and uh, people don't, I think people shy backwards when the word comes up. Uh, I think there's a sense of, in my experience in the 15 years that I worked in the financial services industry was that it was primarily misunderstanding. They just didn't understand uh how it worked and and uh uh how it was a benefit and um uh i'm pretty sure that you know the pandemic and some of the consequences of the shutdown on the economy uh are going to have some pretty dramatic effects on the relative importance of this vital planning tool do you see any changes in this product line you know whether it's term insurance or whole life or or universal life do you see anything um from an estate planning and business transition perspective that you can see on the horizon or that you might even be advocating for on the horizon. Right. Um, I'm going to say, <clears throat> I don't, I don't think that this pandemic um, is a necessarily an instigator of change um, at the insurance company level. Uh, what I've heard, I've spoken to three president and CEOs of the, you know, the top uh, companies who are uh, within the top five largest insurance companies uh, in Canada. And I was surprised to hear the first time that the pen, this pandemic has caused um, some pain with regard to profits, but it hasn't been anywhere near as worse, as bad as the financial crisis. So that's good information. The insurance companies are not in a in crisis mode here. They're not uh, looking for ways to create new products necessarily as a result specifically of COVID. It's just it was just one of those years that you know was bumped in the road and not as great as it could have been. But uh, we're moving on from that. I would say that things that have affected like affected life insurance have already happened. Happened. Um, this gradual declining of interest rates since the 1980s um, and and then just staying here, kind of flatlining in this very, you know, we're at a hundred year historically low interest rate environment and we're bouncing off the bottom and we seem to be staying here and there's not a lot of concern that interest rates are going to spike anytime soon. And when we are in a, a low interest rate environment that puts a lot of pressure on the insurance companies who are collecting money today to um, against a, f a potential future payout in 30 or 40 years from now. So the, when you change your interest rate assumptions on what you think you can get when you put your money to work, um, 
from 6% down to 1.5%. That means- <laughs> dramatic, yeah. <laughs> that's a dramatic shift. That, ha- that already happened. Uh, you know, repricing happened between 2011 and 2014. Um, and, you know, the first repricing did take a 6% long-term interest rate assumption down to 4%. That happened, I think, in December of 2014. And a couple months later, they realized they didn't go far enough. So then they all adjusted their prices to a 1.5% interest rate assumption. So I would tell you now that if you're a client looking to buy life insurance, um, you know, the prices are have already factored in that low interest rate environment. And if the numbers work now, they're always going to work. Um, if anything, it's going to get better. The problem is you're not going to wait around to buy life insurance if you need it for interest rates to increase because there's no indication that they're going anywhere anytime soon. And um, you need it when you need it. The uh, changing age uh, year over year has a worse effect than the potential change of in the interest rate environments on insurance pricing. Insurance so the, still so works. The actual mortality the rate is what's yeah. going to drive the pricing. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so even with that change in pricing, I would say insurance still works. There's still an, a viable insurance industry. And the reason for that is if you can, if you're using insurance for estate planning, I would say two people is better than one because mm-hmm. if I'm an insurance company, I don't have to write a check until both of you fall off the branch that reduces my risk quite substantially and it drops the the cost of insurance by 40 to 50%. That's when insurance is a scream Um, because the amount of premiums that you will pay uh, into a death benefit are usually half of what your estate will pay when it comes to estate tax. So that's a good deal. It's a good investment in today's cash flow for a better result in your estate. If that makes sense, hopefully it does. Well, it does. It does to me. I mean, I think that, I, and and I think you explained it more clearly than than uh, I would have been able to. It, I think there, there's probably going to be some uh, new products that come out that somehow figure out how to leverage that uh, that historic low interest rate. Um, but I, I think the I had always understood insurance really to be something that you know, you don't, you, you, you buy it as protection for an event that, that could have catastrophic effects on your loved one's ability to live the lifestyle to which you, you as a family had become accustomed because of the loss of your income or, uh, you know, maybe to create an estate to do certain things. And, and it, it had become an investment tool, whether it was properly that or not. And, I wonder if in a 1.5% assumption environment, as far as interest rates go, if that's even viable uh, uh, going forward. Sorry, so with regard to the interest rates? Well, whether or not, you know, uh, using using uh, uh, life insurance products as a, as a, a, a deferred growth vehicle and uh, for, for tax purposes, for example, is, is going to continue right. to be an attractive mm. option. Yeah, well, so far, I mean, there's uh, so much that we could get into when we start getting into products. But, you know, if you recall those changes to business taxation from 2018, that created a disincentive for business owners to share um, the line in the sand is, or to share, to save to their, uh, their holding companies or corporate investments. 
the the line in the sand is around the three million dollar mark so if you if you are approaching three million dollars of passive investments inside a, a corporate environment um, the government has now imposed a clawback of the small business deductions so we want to try and hide some of that income we don't want to remove the income we still want our investments to grow um, so we can use an insurance investment to actually tax shelter investment returns and hide some of that income from from what what would normally trigger a clawback so now we've got actually more uses for insurance than less uh, because mm -hmm. of those business tax changes and the low interest in, uh, environment you know it affects everything um, on both sides of, of the coin so if you have your investments in a taxable non-registered account uh, you're going to have lower returns because of a low interest rate environment if you have your money inside an insurance investment tax shelter your investment returns are tax sheltered but they're still going to be affected by the low interest rate environment so you're still comparing apples to apples the bottom line is what we need to compare is, is the cost of insurance less than the taxes you would otherwise pay in order for the insurance investment to be a good place to park your money. And so for a client looking at that, they, they, they have to understand that it really is the opportunity comes because of the um, burden, if you will, that is created by the tax uh, by the tax legislation. Um, it's, it's not so much that, someone's promising tremendous growth inside an insurance policy that and I probably inelegantly was trying to say that it's not that that's happening it's that that you've got this opportunity uh to to or in pos quite possibly a need to to uh take advantage of the um um the way the tax code will will operate if you don't uh, uh, you know if you pay the tax and leave it in a passive corporation versus structuring an insurance policy into the same existing possibly existing entity uh, and sheltering it from future taxation what you're really doing is uh, it, it's um, and I'm searching for the word I'm looking for here but it's really a uh, uh, differential between those two systems it's a it's a tax outcome that is more favorable rather than an investment outcome uh, it's not more risk it's it's Correct. A, it's a feature of the tax system i guess yeah you don't have you're not taking on any more or less risk in an insurance investment portfolio than you are in um you know a, a normal investment account uh your risk tolerance hasn't changed and so it should be the same on, on both sides okay um and i think that's important uh, you know i think that uh, uh i think that people have to realize that that um, you know for the right client and yeah you know you described a fairly uh, significant threshold there dollar wise but but there's a lot of people that have those needs and and uh, and um, to understanding that that a relatively similar risk uh, uh, opportunity to lower your overall tax burden still exists is is very important for them to understand. Um, this is this post or this pandemic period is going to be a very challenging time i think for all business it already has been and and certain industries in particular are going to come out of this pandemic i think badly 
bruised, very unfortunately, very badly bruised. And, but I think family businesses also get affected. You talked about some tax changes that forced their hand somewhat negatively. Um, I think business valuations for private business owners are probably a bit of a black box right now as far as what th- these businesses are actually worth. Um, given the, some of the changes in the markets, which is a difficult scenario if you're trying to sell your business to retire, whether it's to family or to a third party, for example. But what are some of the issues you see for family businesses? Uh, drawing on your, your FEA background and your experience working with entrepreneurs, uh, what, are, what are some ex- uh, issues that you see for them going forward in general, but really as a, as a more specifically as an, uh, uh, an outgrowth of this pandemic? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's positives and negatives. Um, I would say, Chris, there's a lot of uncertainty still. You know, we're opening up. Uh, some things seem to be working. We've got a lot of government support for people who maybe um, wouldn't have been able to pay their rent, um, which has helped you know clients who are landowners and own the apartment buildings. Uh, around town and who are relying on on that income uh, to to plan you know for their lives their cash flow going forward and plan for the next generation so when you have that this level of uncertainty it creates an inability to commit to long-term planning mm-hmm. and that's that's an, an unfortunate thing about this pandemic is that People are still, we're not out of the woods yet. We don't have a vaccine. Um, people are still not traveling. A lot of businesses are still affected. And um, even if your business hasn't been affected as, you, as much as you might have thought, there's still a lot of uncertainty about what might happen down the road. Uh, and so I, I find that there's a bit of frozen in fear or let's just um, a wait and see. Uh, approach which can sometimes be good you know sometimes um, the best plans happen at the right time for any family or or individual and and it has to it has to be the right time we can't commit to we can't commit cash flows to long-term planning initiatives uh, if we're uncertain about what those cash flows look like Um, on the on the flip side some family businesses are still thriving have not been affected and there's you know or they've pivoted in a way that has has protected uh the baseline so we can still do some planning so i guess the answer is very political it depends on which side of that coin you land on uh i think that even if if you're on on the wait and see side i would encourage you to to keep in touch with your advisors and keep the conversation open so a lot of what we're doing you know on on boards uh you know um i'm on a couple of other boards as well um you know i'm on the board for junior achievement and talking about pivoting from um bringing bringing our uh, lessons on becoming an entrepreneur or financial literacy in the classrooms if the classrooms don't exist now what so pivoting to to a technology technology platform um, and so having the conversation going with your advisor can help you maybe pivot your business, pivot your planning, um, or just be ready to implement, to know, to know what you might plan for if and when your business recovers, if and when you have the confidence 
uh, that you need in the stability of your business long term, then you could just be more ready instead of starting those conversations at that time. So I, I think you, you can still do the planning without the implementation in, in advance so that you're ready at the right time. And, and you hit the two points I, I knew you would hit and was hoping you would hit, uh, you know, people, and you use some, I think, perfect wording, people, their response to uncertainty, you know, when you hear the rustling in the bushes at night is to, it's flight, it's, it's fear, or, you, or, or you, you know, you run away, or, uh, or you fight, I should say, or you freeze, and, and yeah. none of them is better than the other, but um, you don't have to do it alone. Uh, you've got advisors around you. And if you don't, it's maybe a good time to go and find those advisors. You know, that may be one of the changes that Zakaria was talking about. You were thinking about, you were thinking about it. Now it's a good time to go and do that. So that to follow on to your second point so that you can be ready to implement because uh, this, there's going to be winners. And unfortunately there's going to be people that suffer out of this. And, and if, if you understand your goals, if you understand what your objectives were, and we're talking about family business here, either as a, as a, uh, as a, a intergenerational family or, or uh, uh, acquisition and growth, you know, if you understand what those goals are, um, you will be ready to implement uh, and you can get the, get the pieces in place that you need to, to be successful. So I'm, I'm really glad you hit those points because I think the, um, the, the wait and see, wait and see and do nothing else is probably uh, going to result in missed opportunities at the end. Yeah. Of yeah. Um, each week, uh, uh, we try to leave each episode with one or two key suggestions that our guests, so that's you, of course, would would make to assist the listeners. And the listeners, um, we've got a lot of people that are advisors. We've, we've also got a lot of people that are listeners that um, are probably consumers of, of these uh, uh, products and services that we, we talk about as solutions sometimes. So it's a, you know, get a, a nice broad range um, when we're dealing with the question of the week, something they can take away and start on that will answer the, 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 the question or move them towards an answer of that question. And, and the question we had this week was, and, and you've done a wonderful job uh, uh, helping us think about all the different ways to think about this particular uh, uh, question. But the, the question this week was, what if I need to get started on my estate and wealth succession uh, planning? What are a couple of things you could suggest for our listeners would be good starting points? Yes. Um, I would say uh, to have one thing in mind, which is what is the trail of breadcrumbs that you have left behind for the people that will have to clean up your messes. So if you don't have an estate plan that is well documented and in a place that can be found by your executor or family members at the time that they need it, uh, think about gathering all of that information, how difficult it is for them and how much easier it is for you because you know where to go get stuff, whether it's online statements or, um, you know, creating a, a one-stop shopping shopping mall for your executor where is your will kept is it stored electronically is it filed somewhere is it in a plastic bag in my freezer 
Uh, do I have any gold bullion stored anywhere? Do I have, you know, where is my insurance for my cars? The minute you pass away, your insurance, a lot of insurance plans for cars and home or uh, it can be voided or, or at risk. So, we, you know, the important, think about the important things that your executor or family members would need and what trail of breadcrumbs have you left for them? Um, I think that's great advice. I mean, that it's, it's shocking to me and, and I'll sort of turn it around where I was going to head with this comment was I think the, I've had other guests say something very similar. Uh, and the reason for that is because they've had experience, uh, either in their own families or with clients where that hasn't been done and they know how unpleasant it is to be going through this black box of someone's life that that you really now have to try and figure out like a, a inspector cluso after the fact yes. and having that trail is really really important not just so that things don't get missed but so that the plan can actually be executed and and people aren't squabbling or or worse being uh uh suspicious of what has happened to things if it were an asset or you know, something financial. If, uh, so, so that's very, very good advice. Is that something that you've come across uh, uh, through work with clients? They've told you stories and. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. There's, there's always somebody, we joke about money under the mattress. Uh, but for some people that's no joke. Uh, there's, <laughs> you know, money under, <laughs> money under the rug. You know, when grandma passed, we found $187,000 lying around our house, like in just hidden because there is this mentality that, you know, we, we don't, we're not going to trust the banks. You know, people who've lived through the great depression or wars where you, they, they still remember that. And, um, so you just, you, you never know there, there are, a lot of different factors to settling an estate. It's not just having a will. It's knowing where you bank. It's knowing how the bills are getting paid. Uh, you know, it's just there's a lot of detail, and it it can it can be a painful process, quite frankly. And you want to make it the least painful process possible, so that your family members can do what they should be doing, which is talking about your legacy and your life, and and celebrating that, and and mourning you. You know, uh, sure. they, you don't want to be uh, forcing them to deal with a whole bunch of financial headaches because you didn't have a plan in place. And do you, um, uh, I mean, if you keep dialing that back a little bit, what you're really talking about is is taking the time I mean, to communicate. Uh, estate planning is, is one of those topics, I think, unfortunately enough, and, and this might be a Canadian thing. We're, we're, we're very polite. You know, there's certain topics that you don't raise in polite company and uh, you know, how much you earn, what your religion is, anything yes. political, you know, you know what I mean? And, and, and having those conversations about estate planning often appears uh, wrongly, I think as um, looking like you're, maybe your beneficiaries are, are hunting money, you know, or right. it's just, there's a lot of uh, negative things that come from that. But on the other hand, I would think as an advisor, I mean, you've talked about your role, you, you spend a lot of time, you have a goals-based plan that you put together for them. In many ways, you're able to tell the story of how the plan, such as it is, 
came to play that came into play you're also probably someone i would imagine that clients maybe older clients should be introducing their executors to and some of their family to so that there is the continuity of of communication that goes on yeah ab absolutely and you know it's sometimes we want to make sure that we provide the tools to our clients to be able to do that whether it's checklists or um you know a homework list uh, i have put together uh, and recently made it a fillable PDF document called an estate planning guide uh, for clients to be able to um, know what the questions that they need to answer for the benefit of their beneficiaries and and executor um, so that they can you know things change if you change your bank you don't want to have to fill out a whole new questionnaire with pen and paper uh, and that's something I'm happy to provide to you if you want to send it out to your to your listeners. Just a link to to the estate sure. planning guide, so they can download it on their computers. They can print it out in paper if they still like pen and paper. Sometimes I like reading a, a hard copy book, and not just reading on on my computer. So I get it. You know, there's some some people still like that that touch and feel of paper. So you can fill it out online and print it, or you can print it blank and fill it out with with the pen. Um, but I would say if you do that, make sure that if you save it on your computer, that your executor knows where it's saved um, and what your computer password is. And if you print it out and fill it out that way, make sure you attach it to your will. And it's probably not a bad idea too, if you've got a power of attorney for property. Uh, in BC, it, uh, I believe that document has a slightly different different name, but whoever's making the, the substitute decisions on your behalf over property, probably a good idea for them to be aware of where that is as well in case you become incapacitated uh, and, and you know, it, it, you might not die, but, but there's still bills that need to be paid and there's still obligations to property and maybe others that have to be continued on. So it's, it's, it's not just in a will setting either. It's, it's important to do that. you that the listeners realize that they should probably do that in a, in an incapacity situation and, and do that with the people that are going to make their substitute decisions there as well. Absolutely. I often say what's worse than dying is, is uh, still being around but unable to make financial decisions yeah it's a, it's a terrible limbo <laughs> it's a terrible limbo and and uh but and it happens all too often and and uh often um you know i i have noticed over the years uh for whatever reason that powers of attorney um are often the um forgotten cousin of the will and and they are they're just not done because they're not and this is not, I, I just mean clients don't often feel that they're as important as a will, but I, I think they are in some ways more important uh, because you're still alive and you may get better. And, and uh, this, you know, these are things that are there for the continuity of your well-being. Um, yeah, absolutely. I say, you know, get your will done. I'm not saying it's less important than the power of attorney, no, but no. I often tell clients run, don't walk to your lawyer or notary public to get that power of attorney because you need it before you know that you need it. Yeah. Um, and it's just so it's an easy document. This is not onerous, but it's just something that is procrastinated, often forgotten um, and cannot emphasize uh, the importance like light a fire under your butt and go get it done. Well, you, there's a lot of surveys uh, uh, over the year. Ipsos Reid did one in this April of 20, 
17, I believe it was, um, either 2016 or 2017, but it was Ipsos Reid. You know, we all hear that number that 50% of adult Canadians don't have a will. And I always thought it was uh, um, just something that was anecdotal, but uh, Ipsos Reid did a survey. And in fact, 50% of adult Canadians don't have a will. And, and while that tends to be young people, you know, people, adults being 18 and up, uh, the older segments do tend to have the wills. Younger people should probably have these too. And, and uh, these are conversations they need to have because who's going to inherit the older people's assets? The younger people. And, and uh, integration across generations and having conversations with meaningful advisors like yourself is absolutely mm-hmm. essential to making sure that estates go the, the right direction. Cindy, You've been incredibly generous with your time today, and thank you so much for helping to answer the question, what if I need to get started on my estate and wealth succession planning? I know our listeners are going to really enjoy what you, uh, what you provided to us. I'm, I'm going to get um, uh, the, the, the link to your uh, estate planning guide, and I'll post that with the show notes, as well as uh, contact information where listeners can go and get more information about what you do and what Kalu does. Um, thank you so much for being a part of the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you to Cindy David for sharing her wisdom and experience with Inception Family Wealth Hour. Next week, our special guest is Mark Halpern. Mark is a certified financial planner, trust and estate practitioner, and master financial advisor in philanthropy. He's going to be discussing the strategic use of new philanthropy in estate planning. And Mark will be answering the question, what if I want to build philanthropy into my estate planning? Thank you for joining us here on the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. Have a great week and stay safe.